Good morning, everybody. Merry Christmas. Uh, hope to see you guys at Christmas Eve, and um, some of you may even be back on Christmas Day, but it's good to be with you today. I love their song about surrender because that's what I want to talk about today. Really, the great surrender, the greatest of all surrenders. Now, let's go back to the Christmas story, Luke chapter 2, verse 6. While, we were, while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. That's the warm, simple, beautiful story of Christmas. John's account's a bit more theological. And I want to spend a little bit more time this morning thinking about John's account. Because John didn't take it so much from the biological as he did the supernatural. And he helped us to understand something of the nature of God. He started in John 1, 1 by mimicking what was said in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, uh, God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning. And that word the is not there. It's not in the beginning. It's in beginning. Just because there was no specific the beginning. Well, John picks that up and parrots it. He says, in the beginning or in beginning was the word. And he's talking about Jesus. He was in the beginning with God. Isn't that what the Bible says? And the word was God. And he goes on to say that all things were created by him. Apart from him, nothing was created. So he was co-creator, pre-existent, co-existent with God. He was God himself. But then look what happens in verse 14 of John 1. And the word became flesh. The, the creator of the world put on skin. And dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Christmas story is really the story of incarnation. God wasn't born. He already was. He simply became man. But the incarnation is the single greatest sacrifice ever recorded in the history of the world. Now, I know that should stop you down for a second and say, wait a minute, what about the crucifixion? Yes, that was a sacrifice, and it was no doubt an incredible sacrifice. But if you understand the majesty of God and the sovereignty of God and the vastness of God and the omnipotence and the omniscience and all of those attributes of God, and you understand how massive he really is, to have confined himself to the human body is the single greatest sacrifice ever recorded. I mean, to really grasp the implication of this, we have to talk about how, God, how big God is and how really small we are. So let's start with God. I, I hesitate to talk about this because some of you are like, I don't want to hear this. I don't even care about this. Um, just, okay, if that's true for you, then why don't you just pull out your device and kind of scroll Facebook. Maybe it's a good time for you to do a little Instagram. I'll let you know when it's time to come back. But for those of you that are interested, let's talk about the size of God. And to do that, we have to start with the size of his creation. Creation is really, really big. You're like, I get it. I know that. We live on a planet. We're in a solar system. It's a long way to the sun. It's really big. I get it. But I don't know that we really understand how big it is. Scientists were really concerned. They wanted to know what's really out there. And so uh, from September 24th of 2003 until January 16th of 2004, they pointed the Hubble telescope 
at just this small black area of space. They took 800 images as the Hubble uh, orbited the earth 400 times. And then from those images, they created a composite. And the composite image is known as the Hubble Ultra Deep Field. I brought a picture so you can see it. And what surprised them so much was that in this black area of space that even with telescopes is somewhat uh, invisible to the, to the eye, they suddenly saw this crystal clear image of not what they expected, which was a, a scene full of stars, but in that single image, they counted 10,000 galaxies. And every galaxy has 100 billion stars. It's hard to even get our heads around this, but here's how to understand it. They now say that there are more stars in the universe. There are 10,000 more stars than every grain of sand on every beach in every ocean around the globe. You know what's interesting to me? When God told Abraham he was going to have a passel of kids, he said, you're going to have kids like the sand of the sea and the stars of the heaven. And at the time, I thought that was weighted for the sand. But it turns out it was real weighted for the stars. There are so many more stars than there are grains of sand that it's hard for us to even understand that. And here's the mind-blowing thing. Not only are the stars innumerable, but the distance between them is vast. The nearest star to us is called Proxima Centauri. Proxima Centauri is part of a three-part cluster of stars known as Alpha Centauri. I brought a picture in case you want to go there. But the bad news is to get there, you've got to somehow find the Millennium Falcon, fix the light, the light speed problem it has, and get on that thing and travel light speed. And at light speed, it would take you 4.35 years to get there. You say, well, how far is that? Well, let me put it in perspective. Light travels 186,000 miles an hour. I mean, a, a second, 186,000 miles a second. That's roughly 670 million miles an hour. So it's fast. You still have to slow down in Allah and Georgetown, but it's really fast. <laughs> you get on this X-Wing fighter or Millennium Falcon, and you're going light speed. You're going to get to the moon in a second and a half. You're going to pass the sun in eight minutes, but it's going to be 4.35 years to get to the nearest star, and that's the nearest star. Creation's really big. Here's the second thing. God is bigger than what He created. The universe is massive, but God is bigger than that. What does the Bible say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What does John say? In beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things came into being by Him, and apart from Him nothing has come into being. That God is bigger than the thing that He created, so there's this massiveness to Him. And it's like, all of a sudden, we're really struggling. Um, and this is the part where you may want to really check out, but let's talk about the problem with God, okay? You see, here's... Here's the issue that, that it's difficult for us to understand because we're so chained to uh, time and distance. And, and time is something that isn't fixed. Did you know that? Time is relative. 
And time actually slows down as you approach the speed of light, right? So time and distance are important to us, but they're not important at all to God. Let's go back to our spaceship, and we're, we're on our way to Alpha Centauri. If you were, in fact, traveling at the speed of light, did you know that time becomes meaningless at that point? That when you are going the speed of light, time actually stops, isn't that weird? It's strange. I've read a lot of different explanations of that. I still can't quite wrap my head around it, but it has something to do with, with speed as a, as a measure of distance and, if, and light is the measure of speed. And if you're going faster than light, light can never catch you, so time can't... I don't know how it all works. But here's what we have to understand. Time is not what we think it is. Space is not what we think it is. We are chained to a time and space way of thinking, and it's easy for us to assume that that's the way God is too, when in fact that is not true. Because the Bible very clearly has taught us from the beginning that God transcends time and space. He stands outside of it, and He's bigger than all that. And so really yesterday, today, and tomorrow are measurements of distance for us but uh, because they represent how our planet moves through the universe, but they are meaningless to God. He sees everything. Today is yesterday. Today is tomorrow. He sees it all at once. Listen to C.S. Lewis' explanation of this. Our life comes to us moment by moment. One moment disappears before the next comes along, and there's room for very little in each. That's what time is like. And of course, you and I tend to take it for granted that this time series, this arrangement of past, present, and future is not simply the way life comes to us, but the way all things really exist. We tend to assume that the whole universe and God himself are always moving on from past to future just as we do. But many learned men do not agree with that. It was the theologians who first started the idea that some things are not in time at all. Later, the philosophers took it over, and now some of the scientists are doing the same. Listen to Lewis. Almost certainly, God is not in time. His life does not consist of moments following one another. If a million people are praying to him at 1030 tonight, he need not listen to them all at, one, at that one little snippet, which we call 1030. 1030 and every other moment from the beginning of the world is always the present for him. If you, if you like to put it that way, he has all eternity in which to listen to the split second prayer put up by a pilot as his plane crashes in flames. So the massiveness of the universe and the distance to the closest star are incomprehensible to us because the closest star is four light years away, but they're nothing to God. God's already there. When you get to Alpha Centauri, he's already there. When you come back home, he was here from the beginning. It's all the same to him. See, I told you you wanted to probably... Scroll Instagram right now. But come back with me now, because let's make the point. For us to understand the incarnation, we have to first of all understand how big God is. To understand how big God is, we have to understand what's been created and to know that he's bigger than that. But here's the point we have to also understand. If God is bigger than creation, we are minuscule in comparison. And so automatically we begin to realize, or at least we ought to, that for the, the massive God, the majestic God who created everything, to confine himself in time and space in the skin of a human being for 33 years is the single greatest sacrifice ever recorded in human history. 
And that leads to the obvious question. How can a God so big even be aware of something as small as me? Why would he care about something so small? David wrestled with this way before the Hubble telescope. David's out laying on the Judean Shephelah, and he's got his sheep in front of him. He's got his hands behind his head, and he's looking up at the night sky, and he can count 4,000 stars, and that's enough for him to realize how small he is. And he wrote these words 3,000 years ago. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man? What is man? that you take thought of him, and the son of man, that you care for him. Why would he care about something so small? And yet here's the insane thing. And this is the message of Christmas. This is what's insane. And yet he does. You're like, well, how do you know, Di? How do you know he cares about something so small? I I can't answer that. You, You might as well ask me to explain the color orange to a person that can't see. How do I explain to you what pineapple tastes like? You're like, well, tell me what pineapple, I don't, it's kind of sour, kind of sweet. I can't tell you what pineapple tastes like. I can only offer you some pineapple. And when you taste it, then you know what pineapple tastes like. It's the same way with God. How can it be that this majestic God that created everything that is so big and massive, how could he care about us? I don't really know how to answer that except to say, but he does. And you've got to taste it for yourself to understand it. Uh, Isn't that what the Bible says? Psalm 34, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And once you taste it, you know. Here's a story I often remind myself of when I struggle with the vastness of these things. Years ago, I was... I was concerned that, you know, I kind of live in an ivory tower as a pastor. You know, you walk into a room and everybody hides the beer and cigarettes, so it's kind of hard to warm up to people. And so I, I felt convicted that I really wanted to inter, interact and share my faith with some guys. I work mostly with Christians, you know. So that morning I prayed, God, bring somebody into my life that I can share the gospel with. And I got busy through the day and forgot about that prayer. About two or three o'clock in the afternoon, these two guys next door, they were building a house. These two guys that were brickers showed up over at our house. They said, can we use your phone? This was before cell phones and everybody had one. I said, yeah, yeah, let me get it. And so we go get that, you know, cordless phone that you have in the house. And, and they get on the phone. They go, yeah, mama, where's sissy? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's just great. Well, she was supposed to pick us up. She was our ride. All right, well, I don't know what we're going to do. And he hangs up the phone. I said, man, what happened? He goes, sissy got thrown in jail again. I said, okay. She's messing with the uncle. He messed with that old dope. And she was our ride. I said, well, you know what? I'll take you home. Because I'm thinking by now, this is a sovereign appointment by God. I'll take you home. He's like, no, no, you don't have to do that. I said, no, I want to. I want to take you home. No, no, man, you don't have to put yourself out. We'll find a ride. I said, let me take you home. He goes, okay, if you want to. I said, where do you live? He said, Grayson. (laughs) Grayson? That's 45 miles away. But you know, when I prayed, I didn't stipulate distance. So I said, come on, let's go. My son, John William, was standing there. I said, John, you want to jump in with us? He goes, yeah. 
So he jumps in the car. He's like 12 or 13. And we drive these guys to Grace, and we talk about everything. I find out how methamphetamine's made, everything. And <laughs> I asked the dude, I go, what's the deal with battery acid? He goes, well, now, I can't tell you exactly, but from what I hear, they kind of sprinkle it over, and it kind of makes it cook. I'm like, battery acid on this stuff, and you're putting that in your body? Not me, not me. But we share our faith. We talk to them about Jesus. Nobody gets saved. But it was a sovereign moment. On the way home, it's getting dark. And John William looks up, and he and I had always kind of looked at stars in the northern sky and kind of identified the constellations. We talk about that a lot. He said, Dad, you know, this universe is really big. I said, it sure is, isn't it? And he said what David said, how could God know who we are? And I told him, I said, you know, John, I don't really know that except here's what I do know. This morning, I prayed for God to bring somebody into my life so I could share the gospel with them. And these two strangers walked up to my door and we just shared the gospel with them for an hour. That's how I know. Now, some people would say, well, that's just a coincidence. But let me tell you something. The more I pray, the more coincidences I have. Why would God care about me? I don't know why. He just does. And that's the message of Christmas. No matter how improbable, God is aware of me. He loves me. He's engaged in my struggle. And Christmas was proof of that. The incarnation is proof of that. So there he was, God in human form, lying in that manger in some barn on the fringes of a backwater town at the edge of a Roman empire. Think of the sacrifice that that took. It's the great surrender. So what do we take from this? I'll give you three quick things. First, it says something about your worth, obviously. He would not have done that for you had you not been worth it. And I think sometimes we need to hear that. God sees enough value in you to go through the trouble of incarnation. And that's a powerful insight for our throwaway world. Everybody just wants to throw people away. And maybe you've spent your life wondering, do I really matter? Is there really value to me? That Christmas is the definitive answer to that. Yes, you do. You matter to God. But let's be careful with this and not twist this thing around and make it about us. It says a little about your value, but it says way more about the character of God than it does about us. I mean, I get it. He valued us enough to make the sacrifice, but you can overstate that value stuff, and I think we do. It's so like us to take the greatest sacrifice known to man and twist it around to fit our own self-absorbed need for reassurance and affirmation. Look how important I must be that God became a man, went to the cross and died for me. Listen, the incarnation was for us, but it was about God. Let's go over to Philippians 2 and let me show you this, okay? This is Paul writing about Jesus. And he says, who although existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto, but emptied himself. And that's that theological word, kinesis. He abandoned himself, and notice it's, it's in a passive tense. He did it to himself. Nobody did it to him. Taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, that emptying of himself, he did. That expresses his character. Paul's point wasn't to say, look how awesome we are. His point for writing was to say, look how awesome Jesus is. Don't blow yourself up because Jesus came for you. 
You can overstate this stuff. And we live in this world of, of runaway self-esteem where everybody's just trying to feel better about themselves. We need to realize this story, the hero is God. He did it because of his heart, his nature. Look, we are the recipients of that, but it was his character that drove. Look, there are times when I have stopped my car, gotten out, and picked up a turtle and set it on the side of the road. Was that turtle, was that about the turtle or was it about me? Well, yeah, I mean, I didn't want the turtle to get squished, but does that turtle have some great significant value? It's just a turtle. I just have a heart for animals. I don't want them to die needlessly. That's more about me than it is about the turtle. I'll swerve to miss a squirrel if I don't have to kill somebody. Does that mean that I think turtles and squirrels have all this infinite value? No. It says more about the nature of the person. That, we're so narcissistic that even when God does the most sacrificial thing imaginable, we still find a way to make it about ourselves. That would be like a guy drowning in the ocean and the lifeguard sees him out there and he swims out to him, grabs the guy, picks him up, gets him back on the beach, you know, does the chest compressions, gets him over, the guy breathes and he's living and everybody goes, look at the value of that guy that got rescued. And everybody runs over, pulls out the camera, and starts taking pictures of the guy that got rescued. He's not the hero of the story. The hero of the story is the lifeguard. So we need to let the hero be the hero. We're not going to turn this around on us and say, oh, look how great we are because of what Jesus did. Let's let the hero be the hero and honor the hero. Jesus is the hero of this story. Truthfully, the incarnation really tells me about how lost I really am. Because when you look around at the evil human beings are capable of, it's pretty staggering. And all of this humanistic idiocracy of saying that I'm going to somehow see everybody as this infinite value and we ignore things like people are shooting up Walmarts and bars and Putin's blasting Ukraine back to the Stone Ages and all of the things that we see and the injustices that are carried out all around us. Look, what does the incarnation really say about it? Here's what it says. It says we're hopeless in our sin. Philippians 2, verse 8, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The whole point of the incarnation was Christ came to die. Why did he come to die? Because there was no other way. If there was a different way, wouldn't he have done it? We are dead in our trespasses and sins, and he would have done that because of that. And he would have never done it if sin wasn't a big deal. We tend to minimize our own wickedness and ignore the desperation of our own mortality. You know, we, we like to country western this thing. You know, you know, I love my mama. I love my grandma too. I grew up on church in the back row, drinking Mountain Dew, you know. But I love my girlfriend, and we like to have a little love at the 50-yard line down at the high school football stadium. And I like to go and drink beer and hang out with my friends and get a little drunk, get a little rowdy, and that's country music. We got a country music theology. 
I'm just a good old boy doing a few bad things, but there ain't nothing really wrong with me. If there's nothing really wrong with us, then why did Jesus come to earth? You can't get away with this all shucks. I'm just a good old boy, and sometimes I do a few bad things. The gospel truth becomes so compelling, and the incarnation forces us to face these hard things and to look deeply at what's causing it. I'm not a big Taylor Swift fan, but she's got a new song out called Antihero, and there's a lyric in that that Taylor Swift has never written anything quite so true. She said, it's me, hi, I'm the problem, it's me. You're right, Taylor. <laughs> but I can sing the same tune. I met the problem and it's me. And correspondingly, the solution is available in the person of Jesus. And that says a lot more about God than it does about me. The incarnation doesn't tell me how great I am. It tells me how great Jesus is. And it tells me about what's now expected of me. And it says a lot about what's expected of me. Let's go back to Philippians 2 one more time. Paul wrote these words to remind us of the character of God. He's pushing them. So before he says, who although existed in the form of God, did not regard equality as a thing to be grasped, he said, if there's any consolation of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any of those things, let my joy be complete by being of the same mind intent on the same purpose, right? And then he says this in verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And here's the key, verse 5, and this is what sets up what he's about to say in verse 4 about the incarnation. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now he says, who although he existed in the form of God. Do you see it? His character becomes our model. And so our calling is to glorify him with our lives, to, to, to manifest that same nature. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, for you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your bodies. How do you glorify God in your body? Now, some people think, well, I'm going to glorify God by going to church. Look, that's great. This is a great place to praise him. But we don't need to confuse praise with glorification. I mean, yeah, I know it's a sacrifice. Come up there and listen to Bill drone on about space and time, and you wonder what he's talking about, and but he finally seems to make sense about these other things. But, uh, okay, I, I, God, I did my bitter pill, took my medicine, uh, check mark for Sunday, right? How am I going to glorify God? Well, I'm going to sing and raise one hand, or I'll keep it down here, or I'll keep it in here. I, you know, is that how we do it? Let me, let me give you maybe... Uh, an unpopular opinion might make some of you a little offended, but you can praise God by the way you sing, but you glorify God by the way you live. We don't necessarily glorify God in here so much as we do out there, right? You say, well, how, what does that mean? Well, I think it means at least two things. First, you have to deal seriously with your sin. I have to deal seriously with my sin. When I was 17 years old, God took this radical, rebellious teenage kid and changed his life. 
And at that moment, my sins were forgiven. You know, the cool thing about God is He sees me when I'm 17. He sees past, present, and future all at once. He knew throughout my life what I was going to do. He knew I was going to be standing here right now today because He sees it all at once. It's like picture I'm looking and I can see what's happening here. I can see what's going to happen here and I see everything in between. And when He declared me to be the righteousness of Christ, my sin was forgiven, my past was forgotten, my future was secured. And now throughout that period, there are times of great darkness in my heart. There are times when I sin, but that same grace that He gave me knowing what I was going to do later still covers me in what I'm doing right now. But it doesn't excuse my obedience to say, don't worry about it, because here's the problem. When, when I received Christ by faith, I still struggle with that same old man, that same old sin nature. He's filled me with his Holy Spirit to reveal his truth to me. He's empowered me to be victorious over that, but I'm still going to deal with it. And as I deal with my sin every day, I glorify God. I come back to him again and say, God, it's me again. I hate to confess the same old sin, but here we go again, right? And, and God, give me the power to stop living like this. And eventually, I look back three steps forward, two steps back. I'm not what I once was. I'm not what I want to be, but I, thank God I'm not what I was. And as we do that, we begin to glorify God because the Spirit begins to conform us and we begin to have that same attitude in ourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And that attitude becomes reflected in our behavior. As I begin to respond sacrificially, as I give up the great surrender. Yesterday, Amy and I went shopping. Saturday before Christmas, we went shopping. We're at TJ Maxx. I'm struggling to surrender. I'm getting pushed. I'm getting shoved. I've got carts coming into me. I got people cutting in front of me at the, at the long line to check out. That whole last will be first thing is echoing in my mind, but not my heart. And I'm, I'm struggling, but I know I'm preaching this sermon tomorrow and I got to live it. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. Die. Don't care when that guy whips in front of you and gets your parking spot, okay? And so I'm standing in line. I'm trying to live the attitude of Jesus. So far, so good. The girl in front of us in line, I promise I didn't make this up. It's true, isn't it, Amy? She, she hears me talking to Amy, and she turns around and goes, can I ask you something? I said, yeah. And she goes, are you Pastor Bill? And I said, yes. And she goes, I recognize your voice from the radio. And she looked at Amy and said, and you have chickens. <laughs> I said, yes, that's true. And in that moment, I thought, thank you, Jesus, that I had the attitude of Jesus all the way through TJ Maxx. Because it was a powerful reminder again that my calling is to glorify God in my body. And you never know who knows you. And you never know who's watching. And you never know the witness you're going to give. And so in the same way that Jesus surrendered for us, we surrender for Him and for the same motivation for them. He surrendered 
himself for us. We surrender ourselves for him and for them. You ready to do it? Let's pray right now. And let's get serious with the Lord. Father, thank you for the incarnation. Not just as a model for our behavior, but as the greatest gift ever given. But the God of the universe put on skin and walked on this planet for 33 and a half years so that we could see him. It's hard for us to even understand what a sacrifice that was. But he didn't stop there. He went to the cross for our sin. So we thank you for salvation that's in no other name. God, we want our lives to glorify you because of what you've done for us. There are people that need to deal seriously with their sin right now in this place. Maybe for the first time to come to Jesus and say, hey, I need salvation, I need forgiveness. God, in this moment, may they just cry out to you, Father, forgive me of my sin. Father, for those of us who know Christ and who seem to always be doing the very thing we hate, we find ourselves back at the beginning. Help us, Father, to have the attitude in ourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although existed in the form of God, did not hold on to it, but emptied himself. Father, we empty ourselves right now before you. Be in this place. Fill us with your spirit and your truth. We'll walk before you. In Jesus' name, amen.